And so, Lord, speak to us now. Take my words, Father. And would you, through your word, speak boldly to our hearts. And by your spirit, would you give us wisdom? Would you renew our hearts to, and empower our wills to love you and to follow you and to obey your truth? And we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to turn in copy of the scriptures again to uh, the, the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, found in the New Testament, just after First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, and then Ephesians. We've been looking over these last Sundays and in the Sundays to come at this letter of Paul, which speaks to the richness, the treasures of God's grace, which are poured out to us in Christ and the impact that that has in our lives and ought to be reflected in our relationships. So we'll be looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord as I read from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day. My wife got a special Mother's Day gift yesterday as we got to be with our son Andrew as he got engaged to be married. And as wonderful as it is to see and celebrate the special love and joy that our son has for his future wife, I really cherish the opportunity to witness the special love and joy of a mom for her child as she celebrated the blessing in his life. And mothers, you know you spend most of your life caring for your children and celebrating the blessings and milestones in their lives as well as, as bearing the sufferings and the difficulties that they face. A mother's heart is united in a special way with that of her children. And, and so today, children, 
kids, no matter what age you are, and that includes all of us, take time to give thanks, to care for, to celebrate the blessing of your mom. And not just today, but every day. And so much more is the heart of God united in a special way with His children. With you and I in, in our joys and in our sorrows, in our triumphs and our trials. And He delights to pour out every blessing of grace upon those who are His. In order that we might know and experience and rejoice in Him. That we might give praise and honor to Him in every moment of our lives. And that's what the, the Apostle Paul is, is seeking to remind the saints at Ephesus and us uh, as his readers, as, as readers of this letter to the Ephesians. In these opening chapters, he wants us to know, he wants us to experience and be amazed and rejoice in the, in the rich treasure, the spiritual blessings that God has lavished on us in Christ. And the reason he wants us to know, the reason he wants us to, to cherish the riches of God's grace is that we would know and we would cherish and we would glorify God himself. Because if the enjoyment of God's blessings do not lead to a greater enjoyment and love for God as the giver of those blessings, then we are no better than spoiled children. Which is why Paul prays at the end of chapter 1, as we saw last week, that God would give us greater knowledge of Him, that he would, he, we would know and experience the hope of His calling and the, the inheritance of the saints which we have in Christ Jesus and the greatness of His power at work for us, that same power that he raised Jesus from the dead and, and seated him at his right hand in full dominion and authority over all things. And here in chapter 2, Paul turns to the, to the details of, of that blessing and the, and the great power at work in us through salvation. First personally and then, and then corporately as God's people. And what we find here in these first 10 verses that we read is that the same power that, that raised Jesus from death to life, that seated him in, in, at the right hand of the Father in glory and honor and power, has as well literally raised you and me from spiritual death to life in the gift of God's salvation by grace in Christ Jesus. God's salvation by grace through faith in Christ, which Paul outlines here, is in some ways the, the crown jewel of the vast riches of spiritual blessings which are ours. Now because our sons have been getting engaged, we've had the opportunity over these past months to look at a number of different diamonds. That's what the, the parents of the groom get to do. And so we've been looking at these different diamonds and in order to appreciate and, re and really uh, appreciate and experience the brilliance and, and many facets of that beautiful gem, you have to look at it against, a, uh, it's better to look at it against a dark background, such as a, a black cloth of some kind. And Paul here, in, in order for us to see and grasp the magnitude of God's grace and the, the great might of his power, in saving us, he wants us to see it against the, the dark, dire background of the situation from which we have been saved. It's only when we, when we know and when we recognize what we, the condition that we're in, what we are apart from 
Christ, can we truly appreciate, can we truly marvel and be humbled by what God has made us to be through his grace in Christ? And which is what we find here in these verses that describe in very clear detail the greatness of our salvation. Paul Paul takes the light of God's truth and he shines it down to reveal this, this great contrast of what we were by nature in our sin and what we are now by God's grace in Christ Jesus. Here we find a very somber and sober assessment of the human condition apart from God, as well as a very grand and glorious description of that same condition after God's rescue and redemption in Christ into the rich eternal blessing of union with him through Christ Jesus. So Paul begins by helping us remember what we are by nature in our sin. Remember, Paul's writing to to believers. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus. And he begins with a a diagnosis of what they were by nature apart from Christ. And this this is what was true of you and me. If you're a believer in Christ, before God opened our eyes to the gospel... And it's what remains true of any who do not yet know and trust in God's salvation in Christ Jesus. And let me say what Paul has to say here is not something that we like to hear. This is not the news that you will hear on the various news outlets. It's not what the cultural gatekeepers or your social media feed will tell you. And unfortunately, it's not even what you will hear in many churches today. However, this is not Paul's assessment. This is just not one man's opinion. This is God's assessment. And as we see throughout his word and the reflection of this truth, who better to give us an accurate diagnosis of our condition than the one who created us, who knows us best, and who has come To rectify that condition. Paul gives us a sober assessment of man's condition in sin. By using three different descriptions here. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the the ways of this world. And the powers of evil. And even to our own flesh. And we were objects of God's wrath. An easy way to kind of remember that. Is to say we were dead We were dominated and we were doomed. Dead, dominated, and doomed. And he begins by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he repeats it again down in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Paul's not just using a metaphor here like we might use after a hard day's work or when we're wiped out, we might come in and say, whew, I am just dead. Paul's making a a very accurate, a very absolute, literal assessment of our spiritual condition. Sin does not just wear us down and make us weak so that we need a, a spiritual trainer to get back in shape. It does not just make us sick so that we need a a doctor to prescribe some medicine to make us better. Sin does not just endanger us so that we need a defender who will protect us, although all of those things are true. Sin does is depleting and debilitating and dangerous. But Paul says our condition is worse than that. We are dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, there's nothing, nothing that we can do to make our spiritual condition before God any better. 
There's nothing that we can do to repair the spiritual impact that sin has upon our own hearts and, and in this world. Why? Because we are dead in those sins. There's no degree of deadness. You won't find different wards in the morgue for people's different conditions. It doesn't matter if you're buried in a beautiful tomb in the most well-manicured part of the cemetery or if you're in a pine box in an unmarked grave. Your condition is exactly the same. You are dead, and dead people cannot do anything to, con- to rectify that condition. Now, that's a hard assessment for us to hear, and it's an even harder assessment for us to grasp. Why? Because look around. We don't, people don't appear to be dead, <laughs> People are are very much alive. So what does Paul mean when he says we are dead in our trespasses and sin? He obviously doesn't mean that we are no longer physically living and breathing. Indeed, he goes on to say we were dead in our sins in which we once walked. So this death is not a, a physical death, but it's a living spiritual death that Paul goes on to characterize as being dominated by the ways of this world and 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 apart and disobedient to the things of God and pursuing our own sinful desires and thoughts without regard for God. Elsewhere in Paul's writing and in the scriptures, this this condition is affirmed. Man apart from God does not seek God in any way. He does not love God. He does not obey God. He does not hear and understand God's word. He cannot please God. Paul says earlier in in Romans, our our mouths are like open graves. If you've ever looked at an open grave, and probably not many of us have, things are messy. It's not a pleasant sight. Paul says we are as unresponsive to God as a corpse lying in a morgue, as the dry bones that he showed to Ezekiel down in the valley. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again of the Spirit to see the kingdom of God. You have to be made alive. That's why he called the the Pharisees who were intent on, on seeking God and following his word, his law in their eyes, but were in their hearts Far from him, he said of them, you are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are still full of dead men's bones. You can be quite religious on the outside and still be spiritually dead on the inside. And Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But we're not just dead. That death is characterized by being enslaved or dominated by the ways of this world and by, the, by the, our enemy, the devil, and our own sinful desires. Paul says we followed the course of the ways of this world. When, by, when the Bible speaks of the world in this way, it's referring to those, those overriding systems, those philosophies, the, the, the values and practices of a world at odds with God, apart from Him. The paths, the world are, the paths of the world are typically in rebellion against and lead away from God and His ways. And, and the ways of the world, if we look around us, are not that hard to discern, are they? Indeed, they are very attractive. They are obsessed with self, with personal pleasure, 
with appearance, with possessions, with power, with sexuality, with fame. We could go on and on listing those things that are important, are seen as, in the world's eyes, as leading to to life and happiness. And yet Jesus reminds us that wide is the path that leads to destruction. And that is what happens when we walk in the ways of the world. Paul says we're drawn by that. And and not only that, there's spiritual forces at work behind that. Apart from God, we are under the dominion and influence of, of Satan, whom Paul calls here the prince of the power of the air. Later on in Ephesians, we'll see he reminds us that our our struggle in this world is not just against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, the the spiritual forces and powers at work in this dark world. And Satan is not all-powerful. He doesn't do anything apart from God's sovereign permission, but he is at work in the systems of this world and in the realm of our lives in a way that would lead us away from God. And again, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, he does it by blinding our minds to the truth of God's Word. He does it by taking that truth and twisting it so that it it seems to mean something different than God intended as a way to lead us away from God. He may come and snatch it away before it can take root in our hearts. Paul is at work in us, uh, Satan is at work in us to lead us away from the Lord. And Paul says he characterizes those who are under that kind of dominion as sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of our flesh and minds. In other words, we do what comes naturally to us apart from God. Our sin nature leads us to pursue gratifying ourselves rather than glorifying God. And as a result of that, being under that dominion, being dead and In our trespasses and sins, Paul says, we are also doomed to condemnation. We are children by nature of wrath because of our sin. Paul says we are born this way, under the curse of sin. And that sin justly deserves God's condemnation. It justly deserves His punishment for which... which which is spiritual death and eternity apart from him. God's wrath is rightfully reserved for that which is evil, that which is is wrong, that which is uh, opposed to what is good and right and true. And because of sin, that describes each and every person apart from God, including you and me. Dead, dominated, and doomed. Just let that sink in. Let the weight of our condition apart from Christ hit you hard. Because when we talk about being saved, when we talk about being forgiven, when we talk about being rescued, I think sometimes we lose the sense of how amazing that is. Because we forget what we have been saved from. We forget what we have been forgiven of. We are dead in sin, dominated by the forces of sin and evil in our lives and doomed to suffer the wrath of God. Mankind apart from God is like the bones in that valley that God shows to Ezekiel. There is no hope. But God did not take Ezekiel to that valley to just perform a spiritual autopsy. 
He took him there to do a miracle. And Paul does not give this assessment to leave us in the morgue of our sinful condition. God is not a coroner. He is a creator. And his redemptive plan and purpose is to breathe life into dead, dry, empty souls. And so if dead and dominated and doomed is what we were by nature in our sin, Paul goes on to remind us now of what we are by grace in Christ Jesus. He begins verse 4 with that great adversative. But God. But God. You were dead, but God made you alive with Christ Jesus. You were dominated, but God raised you up and seated you with Christ. You were doomed under His wrath, but God showed you the riches of His grace and kindness. With these two words, Paul sets sovereign, God's sovereign, gracious provision in Christ against our helpless, hopeless situation apart from Him. And what did God do? Well, it can be summarized in one word. God saved you. God saved us. Paul uses it twice here in verses 5 and verses 8. By grace you have been saved. To be saved means to, to cause, to be, to be safe, to be free from danger, to be rescued from some deadly peril and condition. It also means to, to, to save, to hold on to something very valuable. And Paul uses it in, in both of those senses, as we see in this verb tense, it indicates a, a past action with continuing results. God has saved us in Christ and we remain saved because of His grace. He delivers us and He holds on to us. And Paul elaborates on what God has done by holding up this, this great contrast with what we were. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God saved us by making us alive in Christ Jesus. When we had no spiritual pulse, no inclination or ability to, to pursue or seek God, whether our, when our, whether our lives were open graves of sin and immorality or whitewashed tombs of religiosity and self-righteousness, God comes and He stands over our deadness and He says, I will make these bones live. And how does he do it? Paul says he made us alive together with Christ. What God pictured for Ezekiel in that valley of dry bones, he ultimately accomplishes in his son Jesus Christ who comes down into the valley of sin and death that is this world and he takes on the, the nature of sinful man but but was without sin. Instead, he walks perfectly in the ways of God. He is the son of perfect obedience. And out of great, his great mercy and love, God sends Jesus and Jesus stands in our place and he takes upon himself the condemnation for our sin, the wrath of God. He enters the realm of death and the grave for you and me that we might share in his condition in relationship to God. And his resurrection signifies that God's justice has been satisfied, that our ransom for sin has been paid, 
and that Satan and death have been conquered and God who is rich in mercy and out of his great love for us in Christ breathes his spirit into our hearts and makes us alive again with him. What does that mean? Suddenly everything changes. Suddenly when we, we, we never really were before, even though we might have thought of it, we become sensitive to the things of God. We begin to understand his truth. We begin to, to recognize and, and see our great need and be willing to admit that great need. And, and, and we're able to see God's provision and to believe and receive his gift of grace. We begin to realize and understand that, that because of what Christ has done, we now have peace with God. We have forgiveness of sins. We are no longer under his condemnation. Our heart and our attitude towards life and towards others and towards the world are also changed. We, we desire and we want to live for God's glory. We begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Sin no longer has the attraction that it used to. And we have a deep bond with other believers. Everything has changed. And though it's still impacted, it's still influenced by the effects of sin in this life, as we'll see. God has made us alive. He has awakened us to himself. And he has, he has united us in Christ, who now lives in us by the power of his spirit. Being saved means literally being brought from death to life. In Christ Jesus. And it means being set free from the power of sin and death, from the dominion that we were under. Paul says, God raised us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's kind of hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Does it mean that he's, he's raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places? It means that, that now in, in relationship to God and even in relationship to this world, we now have a place, we now have a, a position, we now, we now are, are in union with a power that is otherworldly. He has freed us from the powers which formerly held us captive. You remember when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, he came out and he was, he was still all wrapped up. In his grave clothes. He looked like something from the night of the living dead. He was uh, coming out of the grave. And Jesus says, take off his grave clothes. Literally set him free. Release him. Jesus not only, not only breathed new life and gave resurrect, resur resurrected Lazarus from the dead, but he, but he sets him free. He doesn't leave him in the cemetery. And God makes us alive in Christ and he, he frees us. He sets us free from the powers and the, and the dominion that this world and sin have upon us that we might now live for his glory. And that we might live in as citizens of his kingdom. And you say, well, Warren, we're still kind of living in the cemetery, aren't we? We still live in a fallen world. Satan is still active and at work. And that is true. But, but this world is no longer where our allegiance lies. It's no longer where our home is. God has transferred our citizenship to a greater kingdom, our permanent place of residence, if you will, to be with him. And so we are no longer under the dominion of the kingdoms of this world. Our new life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. And so we are strangers and aliens here. 
And we now see the world as it really is. And we, while we still live in it, because of what God has done, we are no longer of it. And so being positionally seated with Christ in the heavenlies, by the power of God's Spirit at work in us, our desires, our affections, our allegiances are now with God, with Christ. And we can now live freely in this world as his ambassadors, no longer fearing what the world or, or our enemy Satan can do to us. Satan would love us to convince us that, that the world is all that there is. He would love for us to settle for simply drifting along with the, with the currents of, of culture and the ways of the world in this life. But God comes and he sets us free, breaks that power and, and that spell of sin upon us and he raises us up and seats us with Christ in the place of honor, guaranteeing our inheritance and enabling us to live as sons of the king, not slaves of the evil prince of this world. And Paul tells us the result of that is that we are no longer objects of wrath. We are no longer doomed to an eternity apart from God, but God has made us alive with Christ in order, listen to this, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. We go from an object of wrath to an object of kindness, of grace, of love, of mercy, of truth. It is God's kindness and showing us patience when we continue to fall into sin or fail. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance of that sin, to confess it and cast it at His feet. It's God's kindness that forgives our sin, that opens our eyes to the truth. It's God's kindness that, that provides every single need we have in our lives, and, and even some we don't even realize we have. It's God's kindness in disciplining us in love that we might walk more fully in his righteousness and holiness. It's God's kindness in giving us grace to endure trials. It's God's kindness in surrounding us and bringing us into the family of, of faith that is the body of Christ, using us to minister to and care for one another. God's, it's God's kindness according, as Paul says, to the immeasurable riches of his grace. It never runs out. What an amazing truth. We were dead Dominated and doomed. But God has made us alive. He set us free. And he showers us with his kindness and blessings in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith. Nothing that you have done, but all what God has done. And why would God do this? Paul mentions both God's motives and his purpose. His motives I've already mentioned. Because of his great love, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. God didn't save us because of anything in us. We were dead. It wasn't because we won him over. We were, we were under his wrath. But it was because of his great love with which he loved us in Christ Jesus. God's saving grace is an outpouring, the greatest outpouring of his love. Paul says he is rich in mercy towards sinners. He does not give us what we deserve, but instead he pours out his inexhaustible grace in Christ. And he saves us 
Brothers and sisters, salvation is solely and entirely a gift of God's grace. And Paul wants us not just to see the greatness of that blessing, but to know it, to experience it, to, to believe it, to receive it by faith, by trusting in what Christ has done to us, and then to glorify and, and magnify the, the goodness and the glory of God as the giver of that grace and mercy. There is no one worthy, but God has made us worthy in Christ. There is none righteous, but God has made us righteous in Christ. And he saves us solely because of his love, mercy, and grace. And for what purpose? That he would get all the glory. That we might not boast in ourselves. That we would not say of of why God has forgiven us or why we are here this morning gathering in worship because of what I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've lived my life. But rather that we would say, look at what God has done. When I was dead, when I was enslaved, when I was doomed, God in his grace and in his mercy, saved me in Christ Jesus. And he is glorified in us as we live our lives for him. Paul ends by saying we were created in Christ Jesus. That's another way of saying we we were saved, we were brought into union and fellowship, new creations in Christ Jesus for the purpose of reflecting God's glory in the way we live our lives, the purpose of good works that have been prepared beforehand for us in Christ. Our lives are to reflect our salvation. God has prepared for us a life that would would bring Him glory, that would draw men to Himself. And He works in us and He works through us as His people and as His church to reflect that glory in His goodness, in His grace to others, in His love for others, in showing His mercy, in reflecting and living in, in His holiness and His righteousness in proclaiming and and holding firm to His truth, in relying on His power, in living out His kindness in the way we live our lives. And the goal of that life is to give glory to God as the one who has saved us. So do you recognize what is true of us? What is true of this world, what is true of all people apart from God, the condition we are in because of sin, dead, dominated, doomed. If you have been made alive in Christ, if you have come to understand and see by God's Spirit the great depths of our condition, your condition, do you rejoice in what God has done? Rejoice in being made alive. Rejoice in being raised and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Rejoice in being, being the object in the, of His immeasurable gl- grace poured out in kindness towards you. There may be some here, some of you who, this is the first time you've really been confronted with that reality. Maybe even now God is 
stirring in your heart by His Spirit to give you an understanding of not only your condition and your need, but also of His great grace. Oh, brother or sister, come to Christ. Trust Him. Put your faith in Him. Know His salvation. For those of us who do, let us never forget, apart from Him, our condition is hopeless. But because of Him, because of the hope which we have in Christ Jesus, having been made alive, having been raised and seated with Him, having been objects of His kindness, we continue to live for His glory by His grace. Let's pray together. Father, we can never hear this enough, even though we would like to not have our condition in and of ourselves held up before our eyes. Father, we can see all too clearly the impact of sin around us. Father, we fail too often to see its devastating impact in us. So we thank you for revealing that to us. Lord, for giving us the hard truth that we might know the great truth of your salvation in Christ Jesus. So Father, I pray that if there are those here with us today, Lord, don't know that great salvation, would you do that even now? And Father, would you continue to give us grace to marvel and be in awe and glorify you in our lives and with our lips because of your amazing grace when we were dead made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And even now, it's bringing us to that place where we are seated with you in the heavenlies. Lord, help us to live out that grace, proclaim that good news, to demonstrate your kindness and your love in our own lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.